You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. The enemy we have to face down is inflation. You can't overstate how much a short-term mindset dominates Westminster. The cost of living crisis is not going away. It's very real for people. We've got to focus very much on the things that will really bring back growth. The UK has certainly been a very strong supporter of Ukraine from the outset. We have to stay the course to make sure inflation falls all the way back to the 2% target. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. It's Friday. The weekend is in reach. The weather is warm. Have you got any nice outdoor activity plans, Lizzie, going horse riding? You read my mind. Yes, I am going horse riding on Sunday. Wonderful. But you haven't managed to make it to the races with Rishi Rishi Sunak today, I've noticed. No, he's going from DC to Donny. How glamorous. Hot on the heels of his two-day Washington trip. He's going to the races in Doncaster where he's going to meet Redwall Tory MPs. Now, this is surprisingly important, isn't it? The Northern Research Group are meeting. And do you remember what happened last time when Boris Johnson missed this? Well, there was uproar. And a few weeks later, Boris Johnson was gone. So he's de- definitely turning up. Seems to be like a, a good start. I think start. it would be sensible. It would be sensible. <laughs> uh, there's also a link to our next story. Have either of you got any idea what it is? Oh, my God. It's cryptic. Too cryptic for a Friday. Go on. It's a Doncaster link. No. Ed, <laughs> Steve is looking Black. at me like, what? Yeah. <laughs> Tell us. Uh, Ed Miliband, Member of Parliament for Doncaster North. And Ed Miliband, of course, is uh, Shadow Secretary of State for Climate Change. Right. Ah which is our next topic. It's true. Well, green subsidies were very much on the agenda in Washington. They've clearly been a hot topic of discussion for Keir Starmer's top team recently. So the Labour Party's scaled back its flagship pledge to invest £28 billion a year on the green energy transition. It's blamed interest rate rises and the Tories' mismanagement of the economy, as they say. Writing in the Times, Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves says spending on the Green Prosperity Plan will now ramp up by the second half of the Parliament. The, uh, oh, there's also news too on the government's plans to slowly ease the windfall tax on the profits of oil and gas companies. Well, to discuss all of this, we have Rachel Morrison, who leads our team of energy reporters here in London. And to cover the politics of all of this, our UK government editor, Stuart Biggs. Stuart, let's uh, start with this announcement from uh, Labour, this uh, U-turn, if we may call it that. Uh, how, how, how big a deal is this? Certainly Labour wouldn't call it a U-turn, but it, it's certainly a scaling back or a pushing back or a U-turn, and that will, you know, there are various interpretations available. It's, it's fascinating, you know, because it was, the, it was, it was really the, the sort of... It, it dates back to 2021, and it was, if you think back to what was happening then... The knock on the party in opposition was that, you know, no one really knew what they had in their pocket, what they were planning. And so they rolled out this, you know, big flagship plan 
um, to win votes that they thought would win votes. And now, uh, two years on, or almost two years on, they're basically saying, look, our economy's in this much of a worse state. We can't do it from day one. We're going to have to push it to the back end of Parliament if they win next time out. But the, the politics are very much saying, we think, this is Labour thinking, you know, the the battleground at this election is on economic sobriety and they see an opening in what's happened in the last two years that the Tories don't get to make that argument or they're going to tell the electorate that the Tories don't get to make that argument anymore and that if you want sound economic management with some green push because they're sticking to the 28 that's how we're going to fight this and win and that's their that's what they're saying today and there's going to be a huge pushback from different elements of the party, but fundamentally they're saying economy first next year. Yeah, because surely the pushback is there because Sunak has proved that, yes, you need economic sobriety, but you also need ambition for growth. And this was meant to be it for Labour, wasn't it? Are there any noses out of joint within the party? There there are going to be noses out of joint. We've seen signs of that. You know, the the sort of um, friendlier interpretation of this perhaps would be to say, you know what, they would have got hit really hard um, next week by the Tories if they'd come out and said, you know, we've got 28 billion to spend on on this plan from day one. They know that uh, Sunak would stand up in Parliament and say, this is same old Labour, you can't afford the things that you're promising and Britons are going to pay the price for that. This removes that argument from it takes it away from Sunak, but does it do enough to convince the party and members of the Labour Party that they're still bold? And that's how I think that's why you've got the sticking to the twenty-eight slower time frame. It's trying to it's trying to keep both win both arguments basically. What some might call having your cake and eating it. <laughs> and, Stuart, just one more on this. Just talk, talk us through some of the some of the personalities in this because Ed Miliband's involved, Rachel Reeves involved, and obviously. Starmer as well. They're putting on a united front this morning, and you know these are the big figures in the party. Uh, Ed Miliband, you know, famously uh, a former Labour leader, um, reinventing himself and, and reinventing his political clout with the climate beat. You would say uh, Rachel Reeves very much at the front of the fiscal, you know, economic um, plans for Labour, and Starmer. Uh, trying to sort of stamp his his authority and to and to create that differentiation with uh, with Jeremy Corbyn and so you've got these three figures, um, you know, trying trying to sort of present Labour uh, to the voters. Uh, this is this is possibly the you could say possibly the first big flare up um, that they've had in a while, um, and 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 we're going to have to see how it plays out. But we, I think the I think the the movement that they're trying to create here is is quite clear. Um, Rachel Morrison, from an energy perspective, how big a deal is this plan from Labour when it comes to to overhauling this industry? Yeah, the spending is really supposed to be the UK's response to the US um, subsidies that threaten to attract investment away from Europe and the UK and towards the US. So we know that the energy transition is going to cost a lot. And really what Labour are tapping into is the energy industry's view that more renewables, more clean technologies will bring down energy bills, which has been obviously such a huge problem for the UK and Europe 
um, after the war in Ukraine. So it's it's really a big, bold um, number that they would that they would spend on clean technology, and and it will you know that will go down well with the sector because it encourages the private capital to also come in and spend on those projects. And the other uh, policy that Labour has is bringing forward the clean electricity grid target by five years, which is also pretty difficult to do. Already the Tories want to do that by 2035 and doing it five years sooner will need a lot of money spent pretty quickly. And Rachel, the other big story we're following today is the government's plans to scale back the oil and gas windfall tax. The industry don't sound happy about this. Yes, the government has tried to present this as a way that they're going to help the industry to um, be able to invest more um, because the windfall tax at the moment is 75%. And as oil prices and gas prices come down, the industry has been asking for a floor at which this tax rate shouldn't apply anymore. So the government has rolled that out saying, look, we've given you what you wanted, this should help. But there is a side note in the statement today that says, but the OBR for forecasts show that we don't actually expect this to happen before 2028. So it's not really that helpful and it hasn't taken industry very long to spot that and say, hang on a minute, this isn't really going to help anything. Because as we know with the oil and gas sector, when oil prices are high, there's a lot more development and a lot more jobs. When those prices fall, jobs tend to go. And that's what the government says it's trying to protect, but it probably won't do that much really to protect those jobs in in the oil and gas sector. And Stuart, Rishi Sunak's come back from Washington with this so-called Atlantic Agreement. Part of it's about green subsidies. How significant a win is this actually? It's not a free trade deal. Well, you, you, that's, that's the key point, isn't it? Because this, this seemed to be an exercise of before the trip, set a low bar for what success looks like, clear the bar, have the trip go well, come back and hope that, you know, not too much attention is to is placed on the fact that the difference between an Atlant- this Atlantic Declaration and an FTA, and the reason why let's not forget the reason why the FTA dominates discourse on U.S. U.K. relations is because it was the key promise of Brexit. So here we are, six years on, seven years on, um, the, the government cannot shake uh, this question about whether Brexit was worth it. And the US-UK FTA was a key part of that question. It was a key part of the equation. And so, you know, the the declaration is nothing like an FTA. And that is the political problem that Sunak faces on it. For the energy industry, Rachel, I I wonder kind of does the, the scope for there being more cooperation on things like, you know, clean technology actually have any sort of impact for businesses in the UK? Yes, because there are lots of um, industries that are kind of growing, for example, hydrogen, and we need to get the the electrolyzers, the equipment that we need for those technologies. And what the US uh, tax credit system does is it incentivizes companies to make those um, components and that technology in the US, and then we as the UK would have to import it. So it is important if we are going to be importing a lot of um, a lot of technology that we have a deal in place that makes that easier. Um, Ideally, the UK would also be manufacturing some of that itself. And that's really what the political push is for. But we have to recognise that we probably will need to import um, 
technology and setting up a framework that makes that easier is definitely beneficial. And Stu, while we've got you, let's just discuss the latest by-election news or not. In this pleasant weather when Rishi Sunak's had the opportunity to do some pruning, he's been trimming back Boris Johnson's honours list. You know, when we when we come on to discuss Westminster politics at the moment, it's so much of it is about Sunak's headaches and they're various variously referred to as you know, Long Johnson or, or the pandemic, uh, you know, fallout that just continues what is and, and the trust factor. But the thing is, ultimately, this this honours list uh, was was only ever going to cause Rishi Sunak problems because of the various names uh, that were, you know, reportedly going to appear on it. And then you've got the broader question of, you know, Johnson's premiership didn't exactly end uh, in a sort of honourable fashion, as it were. You know, he was kicked out by his party. So there's this huge question that then repeated itself when Liz Truss's premiership imploded. Is should, a, should an outgoing PM who ends, whose premiership ends in that way then get to reward uh, people who were key parts of their administrations? And that, that ultimately is going to haunt Sunak's decision on who gets to get these honours and then you've got a a sort of more direct political um, question of does Rishi Sunak really want to face um, by-elections right now so if he you know if Johnson honours a sitting MP convention is that they stand down and their seat gets contested so right now Labour well ahead in the surveys Um, some of these seats are uh, the, the last types of seats that you'd Sunak would want to be fighting right now. So you've got a sort of, you sort of got an ethical, moral question. You've got a direct political question. Um, it's it's a, it's a headache. Uh, and Rachel, just um, briefly, obviously we have some nice weather finally, and uh, gas prices have come down enormously over the last few months. Wholesale gas prices. Just talk us through where we are in that market as we as we look ahead to the winter, six months away. Yeah, that's right. What we're really focusing on at the moment is a low demand period. So when it's super sunny like this and we're getting towards the longest day of the year, it's sometimes difficult for the grid to deal with the amount of of solar energy. And that's also helping to push down gas prices further. So at the moment, we're sort of finding the bottom of the market, at which point gas becomes cheap enough for Asia to buy cargoes of LNG and divert those away from Europe. So this is the time of year when we're filling up gas storage with hopefully low priced gas ahead of the winter. And that is going very quickly. So, it, you know, we're much, much ahead of the schedule that we usually have for refilling storage, which is a good thing. But even though those prices are low, we hear a lot from the industry that there's still a lot of risks for next winter and everybody's still worried. So it's an interesting time where we see a very nervous market and any kind of outages, anything that goes wrong um, with some of the gas infrastructure can cause big, big spikes. So the market is still quite volatile at the moment. Which, of course, leads us back to Rishi Sunak's number one priority, halving inflation by the end of the year. Well, thank you, Rachel Morrison, who leads our team of energy reporters in London and our UK government editor, Stuart Bix.
The warm weather and lack of rainfall in London in recent weeks has put the focus back on our water system. We've seen public anger towards England's privatised water companies grow due to frequent sewage overflows into the country's rivers and surrounding sea. Meanwhile, last summer's restrictions on water use also frustrated households, given Britain's system still suffers from widespread leaks. Well, we've been discussing all of this with the Conservative MP Philip Dunn. He's the chairman of the Environmental Audit Committee. Caroline started by asking him if Britain's water issues are being driven by policy or by climate change. I think the answer is both. Climate change clearly is impacting on the uh, frequency and duration uh, and volume of water that's falling out of the sky. And we see increasing uh, volumes of, uh, of water, sort of, of rainfall out of season, if you like, um, often arriving in much heavier, denser bursts, which leads to runoff. And the runoff then puts pressure onto the uh, drainage systems. And in this country, we have over 100,000 uh, kilometres of combined uh, foul and surface water drains. And because they have foul water, meaning um, sewer, uh, water that needs to be treated in water treatment works, they go into the works, the works get overwhelmed by the volume of water that's accompanying them. Uh, and mm. that leads to a need to, to be released somewhere. And rather than be released up into the uh, sort of back up the system into the streets and houses, it gets released into our rivers. And that has built up over about 60 years of underinvestment in the drainage networks underground that we don't see and therefore it hasn't had the political priority for successive governments over decades uh, which it has needed to keep pace with the development above ground. The privatised water companies have come in for enormous criticism haven't they over the last couple of years. Do we need to change the way, the way that we run our water system? So I think there has been uh, massive public outrage over, once they became aware of the extent to which sewage is spilling into our rivers. Much of this happened uh, as a result of a a government decision to be more transparent and to require water companies to start to monitor this issue, uh, which never happened under the uh, Labour government and was introduced by Lord Benyon when he was the water minister uh, in uh, 2012. And those monitoring devices will cover all water systems, all all assets, so treatment works and combined sewer overflows uh, by the end of this year. And that is what's been leading to uh, public awareness because the information has been made public since April 2020, so only very recently, really. Um, And until uh, that happened, people were just unaware of this issue other than those who came across it uh, individually. So um, I think that's how it's happened. To answer your question about, you know, is this all the fault of the of privatisation. I would argue uh, that it is not the fault of privatisation. I know many of the NGOs and campaigners uh, like to to, to point that finger. Um, undoubtedly, uh, many water companies have been uh, uh, paying significant dividends, but they've also been investing capital uh, into sorting out this problem at a far greater rate uh, than happened when they were nationalised. Uh, and it's, it's my uh, view that the um, the weight of private sector money that's looking to invest in broadly green finance uh, opportunities of a utility nature which can pay a dependable return is far more significant than the amount of taxpayer funding that would be available um, competing against all of the other demands on taxpayer funds if these companies were to be nationalised.
Okay. On the data point, though, I've heard that argument before and the issue that, you know, we only are concerned about the kind of sewage issue because the data is available. I mean, it does make me reflect. Um, Has the problem always really been that bad or has actually it become worse in recent years? And without data, obviously, we can't know that. But anyway, aside from that, there have been fines. The Environment Agency's fined um, Anglian, for example, £2.65 million in April. That was the biggest penalty since 2021. Do you expect more fines like that now? So, I mean, just to pick up your first point, I think think actually it is the case that the data is making us more aware of it. Um, it, We have... improved water quality considerably uh, since the 60s by removing much of the industrial uh, derived pollution through uh, legislation. So I think that the water, our, our waterways are actually in better health than they were um, w- when they were being polluted by uh, chemical plants to the extent that they were in big industrial areas. So I think it sort of slightly swings and roundabouts here. But on the, on the point um, that you're asking about fines, we've Undoubtedly, the levels of fines that were introduced uh, until uh, until relatively recently, until um, uh, about five years ago, were effectively a cost of doing business to the water companies. They tended to be fined um, a small number of hundreds of thousands of pounds rather than into the millions for persistent breaches. Um, And that uh, sort of both regulatory and judicial culture is changing fast, um, reflecting public opinion and, uh, and and government priority. So I think we're going to see more and more significant fines uh, emerging. There are currently, 2000, I think it's 2,200 investigations being undertaken by the regulators into six water companies' breaches of permits. Those are have been going on since last autumn. They should start to be resolved, I would expect, from this summer, this autumn, we'll start to see the outcomes from those. And I would expect to see more significant fines. One of the things that I've done in Parliament is to persuade the government that the proceeds of fines, instead of being um, uh, going to top up the Treasury's coffers, should be ring-fenced to go into uh, uh, ensuring that the, that the harm is reduced, so into improving mm. water treatment and we've and I'm pleased to say that the government responded very quickly to that and so the proceeds of fines now will go back into helping solve the problem. Is the regulator fit, fit for purpose? Is is Ofwat doing a good job on this? So I think Ofwat's remit is is changing. Uh, they've not had the priority of water treatment until uh, this most recent um, strategic policy statement which covers the five-year pricing period which Uh, starts on the 1st of January 2025. So the way capital expenditure is uh, is determined for this regulated industry is that water companies have to produce business plans which have to get signed off by the regulator and by the Secretary of State now um, every five years. And that, uh, up until now, the priority of Ofwat in in approving those business cases is that they've needed to be focused on reducing leakage, which is one of the issues you started with, Caroline, um, mm. and secondly, keeping bills at or around inflation, in an inflation plus or minus figure for each five-year period for customer bills. So those have been their two main priorities. Now, for the next pricing period, the main priority is going to be improving water treatment. And I think that's very welcome. And that is what's led to Water UK announcing last month 
that the water companies are proposing £10 billion of capital investment on water treatment issues in the next pricing period. That's a sea um, change. That's triple the amount that they've invested in this in the current pricing, pricing period. I suppose I've got a bigger thought question, really. We're coming, you know, 13 years of Conservative government. There, When I speak to business leaders every day, the issue and the concern is that... The, the government is not setting up the right structures, the right long-term goals and incentives for business in order to get the right outcomes. And it feels like water, um, when you look at the data, is one of those instances where very long-term decisions have been made and they have resulted in not the best outcomes in terms of the environment. I, I wonder if... Yeah, I wonder what your response is to that, the concerns around whether government is setting the right priorities. I think that actually the government is responding uh, very well to the to this challenge. Uh, most NGOs wouldn't agree with me, but they're not giving credit for what how the government has completely transformed uh, the prioritisation, as I've just said, on uh, of water treatment. I think what you have to remember. So they've done this through through a number of plans. There's the sewage reduction overflow plan, which came out last autumn. There's the plan for water, which came out this spring. These are calling for £56 billion of capital investment to solve the water treatment uh, issue over the next uh, 25 years. And I think what you have to realise is that these are often enormous infrastructure challenges, both in terms of uh, securing the, uh, the, the planning approvals, the scale of capital investment required. But what we're talking about is, in many cases, replacing or in, enhancing or enlarging sewage systems that were installed under the Victorian era with modern contemporary ones. The best mm. example is the Thames Tideway project, which was in, initially conceived of in 2007, uh, and it will become operational in 2025. And what this is doing is providing a new main sewer underneath the River Thames to take 21 uh, regional uh, sewage systems right across mm. London uh, to remove 37 million tonnes of sewage from the River Thames. This is a massive project. It's costing £4.8 billion, take 11 years to construct. So it, it is, and that's indicative of the, the, the scale of the challenge. Obviously, London is a bigger challenge than anywhere else, but the cost will be... £20 per household within the Thames water area of London um, to, to, to pay for this enormous capital investment. On the subject of underinvestment, the outgoing chief executive of Scottish Water says that basically we need to pay more. He says UK households need to pay more for water uh, given the past uh, underinvestments. Is that inevitable? Well, I've just given you an illustration of how if we're going to modernise our drainage network, uh, it has to be paid for. Uh, by someone and I, it is better that it's paid for by customers than taxpayers because taxpayers have got so many other competing demands um, so I think there will be a, a modest increase in bills but it doesn't have to be the, the sort that some people are, are fearful of Well that was uh, Conservative MP Philip Dunn, Chairman of the Environmental Audit Committee speaking to Caroline Hepke and me That's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Walcock and our audio engineer was Marufal Hussain. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more on Monday. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.
Success. It's discipline. It's teamwork. It's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing global wealth management and investment banking firms in the industry. Stiefel. It's where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.